The idea really around building a, a philosophy of natural prosperity is that at one moment you have to account for everything and you have to kind of show what it means and you have to show progress and effectively give people a way to hang their hat on something that's going to take them forward. So what I'm going to do tonight is to sort of go through some of the basics. Uh, it's not frightening, it's not too mathematical. But what I hope to do is to show you it for real. So we've actually applied it, and we're actually applying it also in places across the UK. But I'm going to take you out of the UK to begin with. So uh, there's going to be kind of back and forth, but at one moment, I'm going to make a reference to the COP, because, of course, I spent you know, endless hours of my life there. Um, so what I thought I'd do is I'd have a little stop-off in the middle about a piece that's relevant and what was in the COP outcome in the pact and then at the very end if people would like to ask questions then please do about the lecture but also about on, on COP if you want to and I'm happy to stay even later afterwards if some of you want to ask about all the things that happened behind the scenes I'm very happy to tell you about those probably not on camera though so that would be for those who want to stay there's a tantalizing offer right <laughs> um, so in a sense what I'd like to achieve by the end of this evening is a feeling that this is an accounting structure that's for everybody. It's really easy to run. It's like running your household. Uh, it's not completely difficult, but there are some interesting bumps in the road, which I think we've got some ideas for. So let me, let me just kind of start at the beginning um, and put you into the mood, which is you know every morning around about 6 o'clock, the ladies in my village who are here, they get up, they quietly get out of their beds, get the children, and then they go out and they milk the cattle, the sheep and the goats, and then they make tea. Children go off to school, and then these ladies transform into something completely different. They, translate, they transfer themselves into planetary warriors, quite honestly. And what they do is they then go into the forest behind where we live, and they have set up an enormous nursery for indigenous trees. So what they're adept at doing is going into that forest to choose the seeds from very particular medicinal trees, to bring them back, they've learned how to germinate them, and then they grow them. And effectively, whether it's in the Mara, in the Masai Mara, or up in the Mao forest, they're able, with a huge degree of success, because they look after them very carefully, so instead of having maybe a 60% success rate, they're up around about 90%, which is quite unusual for germination, and they grow these seedlings. And after a little while, the seedlings get to be about that high, maybe about three weeks, and after a month, they're about this high. It's just a phenomenal growth rate, and then they're ready to plant them out. So why am I telling you that? Well, I'm sure that most of you will have read somewhere headlines such as, we're going to plant 10 million trees, we're going to plant 20 million trees, we're going to plant all these trees. And what we're actually trying to demonstrate is, yes, plant trees, but what you actually have to try and do is plant the right trees in the right place. There's absolutely no point in planting a species that doesn't actually belong in a piece of land where you know, maybe there's some space. So very carefully over the last few years, we've been mapping all the different indigenous species. And so these ladies, here you see them, this is now the outcome of all this hard work, is that they actually then can get, derive an income from growing these seedlings. So now they can buy food. But essentially what they're trying to do is to create and extend and restore landscapes which have real value. So that's what this is all about. 
It's about how do you account for that and how can you really change the dynamics of economics, our current economic model, to make sure that this kind of activity is properly remunerated, but not in a way which is like um, a charity, but one which is actually working for the planet. So here we're trying to recognize efforts of people previously who've looked after forests, looked after land, maybe they haven't de you know, denuded it, and to benefit those going forward to create opportunities for livelihoods. So this is a challenge because today's economics doesn't genuinely recognize those kinds of efforts. So we're creating markets. And in a sense, these, these are slightly crazy because we're creating a falsehood by saying we're going to perhaps create artificial value. So part of the job of natural prosperity and natural capital accounting is to bring it back to what is the real value. What is the real value of planting trees? What is the real value of restoring soils, of keeping biodiversity going, and so on? So we don't create artificial markets that could just simply like a bubble collapse. So we don't want to make this like a property market. We want to make this real value to real people to create livelihoods. So, and it's not just for humans, it's for non-human species as well. So to, to get this up and going, we have to actually do a few things. So first of all, we have to make sure that we get those essential benefits going to humans and non-humans properly articulated in terms of our future survival and prosperity. So we need, to, we need to have a framework that will do that. The second thing we need to have is a sort of inclusion of nature in our decision-making. So we're very familiar with making more and more decisions around inclusivity to make sure that young people, people with disabilities and so on are included, they're not excluded from decision-making. But now what we're trying to do is to include nature into that whole lexus of when we meet, we make decisions about planning and so on. So we're extending, so to speak, the, the community to also have nature as part of that. What we then want to have are consistent and scalable measures. Not that they're the same everywhere, but effectively that you will see them in context and they will have the equivalency no matter where you go in the world. So whether it's President Bolsonaro being challenged about forest and deforestation, or it's ourselves, maybe in this country, tearing up a piece of ancient woodland, whatever it is, there has to be some kind of equivalency to make everybody accountable, but also to benefit. So that's, that's really important. And it brings together social capital as well to really attach itself to the sustainable development goals. Then we need some assurance methods. So it's, it's no good you swearing on, the, swearing on whatever you want to swear on and saying, I did it. Actually, someone's going to have to turn up and check that you did it. And they're going to have to have the same methodology. And it's going to have to be declared transparent and so on. So there's assurance methods that we have to put in place as well. And at the end, you need some trusted agents. And there aren't very many of them around at the moment. But essentially, what we need are trusted agents that can interpret the data. So does it really mean? something, that you planted these trees and that the carbon was captured and, and whatever. So we need people to interpret what's going on. So really, it's a great big make-work program, frankly. That's what this is. Mr. Biden is going to, grow, is going to build roads and, and do lots of transport networks and everything else. But for those of us involved in, in creating the planetary health, this is also a make-work program. And we need to see a lot of investment in people and the capacity of people to be able to do these kinds of jobs. Okay, so it's, it's, it's not without its uh, challenges, but nevertheless, it really can change prosperity for many. 
So now I want to introduce you to my team. Okay, this is my team on the ground in Kenya. And they're, they're a kind of interesting bunch of people. So I want to introduce them to you because they're really amazing people. So here is Beatrice. Now Beatrice is a very unusual woman because she's a, a chief. She's a chief in the sense of being part of the Department of Interior, we might know it as. So, but she's now a chief chief because she's been promoted. So she's a chief of chiefs, which is very unusual for a woman. Um, we have Mr. Conness, Joseph Conness, very well-known person in kind of East Africa for uh, taking care of trees and so on, and has been pretty much the beginning of the avocado planting across the Mao to actually create livelihoods. But what he has done, he's restored nearly 200 kilometers of riparian areas and got water running in many, many rivers. So he's, he's the man who can magically restore rivers across the Mao Forest, which I'll explain to you. Now, these two gentlemen, Stephen and, uh, and Joel, they work up in the most beautiful forest in the northern part of the Mao, which I'm going to describe to you. And they were the ones who have been keeping watch and vigilant over a forest that has got enormous wildlife. It's got an enormous population of elephants embedded in this forest, but it's also got lots of cattle. So what these two are sitting on is the less known, or the, sort of the, the well-kept secret that you can't put cattle and wildlife together. Actually, not only can you do that, but both benefit. So this is an interesting sort of outcome of what do we think about restoring landscapes and putting wildlife and, and livestock together. Irene is probably the power lady of women. She's got an amazing women's group across the whole area. Um, we then have two uh, more individuals. Uh, this is actually Patrick. He's my husband, by the way, Maasai chief, and, and um, also Frederick's uh, Joel. So he is the person who works with all the forestry departments. Now, why do I tell you about these people? Well, because they have worked long and hard, maybe 10, 15 years, trying to bring the communities together and really not having the, the capacity to persuade people because nobody could see the value. And then the government announces that they're going to plant 10 million trees. And all of a sudden, it's like bonanza. So they're very wise, and they said, well, we're not just going to plant any old trees. We're actually going to try and do this properly. So together, they started to put, through, put together teams. So here we are, two years later, with 100,000 households, 400,000 people now who are planting trees, growing trees, and creating medicines, and so on and so forth. So things can move very, very quickly. And what has been the change? Well, the change has been the fact that we've been able to, quote, create an asset, the natural capital asset. So instead of it just being a very nice forest that people are going to plant trees in, we're starting to create value. And where does the value come from? Well, it comes from the fact that the forest provides water to 30 million people. It provides medicines. It provides a home for wildlife, which brings tourists, and so on. So this, the, the idea about natural capital accounting, which underpins the natural prosperity, is that not only do you create opportunities for people to build livelihoods, all of these and all those different livelihoods that have been created for the different communities, but you also can create something very iconic, which can set the stage for conversations. And so in the COP, Kenya was able to talk quite coherently and legitimately 
about their efforts to restore large tracts of forest. Now, why did they need to do it? Well, the sad state, this is the sad story. So back in the 1960s, this is the forest where we are. This is the very pristine forest in Tinderet. And here, all the way through the middle, there had been some cleared land. So there were about 500,000 hectares of pristine forest. The RAF used to fly over it. There are aerial surveys, so we, we can do this very accurately. But roll forward to 2019, and it's down to 240,000 hectares. Now, if you can conceive it, that is an enormous area. I mean, it's a huge area that has been lost, a forest. Encroachment, burning, and so on. And you can see the big areas of the red where it's actually been taken away. But alongside the, the forest loss, which you can see from space, we've lost literally 3,000 kilometers of river. So in the 1960s, there were 7,000 kilometers of open river. Now there's only 4,000. So lose the trees, lose the water, lose the rivers. So now, unfortunately, when the rain stops, it actually feels like a drought. It doesn't feel like just a pause in the rain. It actually feels like real drought, which is very worrying because then, of course, you can't plant the crops and so forth. And the other challenge is that right the way up the middle, all the way through here, big industrial agriculture has got in and has pushed all of the smallholders, about 200,000 small farmers, into the edges of the forest. So they encroach in the forest, they chop the trees down, you lose soil, and the whole thing gets into a very, very pernicious cycle. So how can we reverse that? How can we turn that cycle back? And how can we create the kind of numbers game that's very, very important? Well, now I'm going to sort of flip out into the COP26 because one of the big differences this time, so I, I have attended, of course, many COPs, um, and as the chief scientist, I was obviously quite, you know, running around like a, like a chicken without a head sometimes. Um, and my job was to produce a lot of the evidence, a lot of the science, and, and really kind of take forward all of the argumentation. And that's what Paris was like, trying to you know, put the numbers in front of people and say, this is real, this is what's happening. What was extraordinary, I felt this time, was that we didn't have to persuade anybody that climate change wasn't happening. And, and literally, you could feel the extra energy that that allowed people to have, because if you're not having to persuade people that climate change is real, you can use all that energy to do things like, well, what are we going to do about it? So from the outside, you must have been watching maybe the first week where there were lots of announcements, people signing agreements about deforestation, you know, all sorts of exciting things, world leaders you know, lining up to do things and have their pictures taken and so on. But one of the things that was truly, for me, uh, kind of going, turning the corner was that it wasn't an admission of failure, but it was understanding for the first time truly that we weren't going to be able to solve, or we're not going to be able to solve the problems just by dealing with energy and transport. Actually, we have to put nature right into the core of all of these solutions. So you'll hear this phrase, nature-based solutions. And if you, if you take a moment and you go and look at paragraph 38, we now have very important text, which talks about emphasizing the importance of protecting, conserving, restoring nature and ecosystems to achieve the Paris Agreement. That was never said before. It was implicit, but it was never actually written down, that we need the planet Earth to help us reach the Paris Agreement. So that's really important. 
And then we're going to do that. Well, how are we going to do it? We're going to do it with forests, terrestrial marine ecosystems, acting as sinks, in other words, absorbing and keeping greenhouse gases in, creating reservoirs, but keeping the gases in the ground, and by protecting biodiversity while ensuring social and environmental safeguards. So this is a really important paragraph, certainly for me, because for the first time it says, okay, we're going to say this is important. Now, a bit further on, you'll get to something called the implementation, and that's where the rule book is. So there's a rule book, you know, Article 6, Article 9, there's all these rule books, and they're all finally agreed. Um, but the rule book is missing how to do it. It's got words, but it doesn't really tell you how to do it. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you how we can do this, uh, not just why, but how we can do it in a way that is practical so that literally by next year, when we all go, hopefully some of us will be looking um, you know, online, some of us will be there at Sharm el Sheikh, there's actually real progress that shows we know what the plan is and how much it's going to cost and what we can do. So it's really critical that the COP process carries forward with this idea that people have got solutions all over the world and somehow we have to scale them up. So you may have a great idea about saving a local forest. The way you do it, the way you undertake it, whether it's sustainable, how you calculate the carbon, all of those things that go with that package, you should have in the back of your mind, well, could I do it somewhere else? Could I, could I do it, say, in another county? So, for example, in Essex, where I'm part of the Essex Climate Commission, we have decided to take one-third of the county of its area, so that's the Blackwater and the Colne, that huge catchment, and to make that a climate focus area. And in that focus area, we will effectively take agriculture along a new pathway, we'll take the planting of trees, we'll take all of this and see how we can do it at scale. And if we can do it there, then we can certainly do it in many other places in southern England, where the climate is going to hit very, very hard. So it needs to be scalable. But whatever you do has got to be transparent. No point in having an accounting system if you can't actually show the calculations. So you need to be able to demonstrate to people, this is my assumption, this is how I did it. So we'll come to that. And then actionable. There has to be a sense in which it's achievable, but you have to figure out how to do this in small steps. So understanding what one tree does is really important because then you can do 100 trees and you can see over time how things can make a difference. Improving soil health, you can do it again and again and again. So all of that is, is sort of fundamental to achieving what we call net zero carbon, maybe even going negative because that's actually what we have to do, um, but also improving biodiversity net gain and so on. So nature-based solutions are going to be absolutely paramount to achieving not only the Paris Agreement, but now the Glasgow Pact. There, there's no doubt in my mind about that. And they have to go hand in hand with technology. But the other important thing that came out of COP, if you kind of read the whole thing through, is that for the first time there's a global goal on adaptation and mitigation and adaptation financing has essentially been brought to the same level. So we're no longer just focusing on switching fuels and looking at how we move ourselves about and how we power a society, we're actually saying we also have to adapt as well. So it's mitigation and adaptation now. Those two things go together. 
So as I said, I'm happy to answer lots of questions about how we got there, some of the side phrases and that. But if you look at the graph, you can see that round about 2040, you know, we, we, we hopefully have got everything in the bag from our energy industry, buildings, transport, maybe, maybe a bit more. But effectively, it's all down then to how we grow our food and how we take care of our natural resources. So that is what's going to get us to the final line. It's going to be the nature-based solutions, the way we grow our food, and the way we interact with those two. So that's the juggernaut sitting underneath. And that's how we have to go forward, effectively. Okay, so that's, that's really the, the challenge that we have. So I was thinking a, a lot about what is the calculus that I, I need to pull together for this natural prosperity thinking. And in the first lecture, I talked about there being three parts to it. So there's the sort of, what's the health of natural and social capital? Because I believe the two go together. I, I mean, making the distinction between human and non-human species is you know, it's a very fine line. So I tend to put everything together. Um, and then later we'll come to consumption, production, and distributional fairness and equity. They'll be in later lectures. So that's essentially why we're looking at this calculus. Now, what's important is the calculus has to connect to things that are already known. So there's no point in creating a, a system that doesn't connect to what governments are doing. And what governments are doing is creating a system of natural accounts, national accounts, of ecosystem accounting, and sort of very specialized ones where they look at how the environment and ecosystems work together. So I'm not going to bore you with that, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of, um, a bit, a bit of the science about why it's difficult to just de novo create the underpinning for a new economic model. And one of them comes from the fact that these diagrams are you know, prolific in the literature, and they're called the planetary boundaries. I'm sure some of you will have heard of them. But effectively, a group of scientists back in the 1990s and then in the 2000s worked on what are the global, what are the planetary boundaries that we must not essentially um, uh, transgress. So, you know, our use of fresh water, the biosphere, the integrity of the biosphere, air quality, aerosol, ocean acidification, you know, there's a whole raft of these. And slowly, year on year, we begin to transgress these boundaries. And this is really very, this is very, very worrying. Ocean acidification is clearly one of the major ones that could um, so essentially tip us over the edge when it comes to some of the food chains, the marine food chains. But as many scientists will tell you, you can't deal with one without dealing with others. So there's a lot of work that's done on how do all of these interconnect with each other. So it's a bit like, you know, you don't want to trigger something and have unintended consequences. So dealing with the planetary boundaries has a lot of challenges, but it is recognized that we have to live within these planetary boundaries, especially thinking about the problems of going from 1.5 degrees. And some of you will have probably heard that in the last days, there was an attempt to allow that line to go up to two degrees. Okay, now, between you and me and all the, and all the scientists who I know and myself, there's large and broad-scale surprise at the extent of the extreme events that we're witnessing already at 1.1. And what a lot of them have said to me, and, and I know for myself, is these were the kind of events that we associated with nearer to two degrees, not 1.1, not 1.2. So if it's already happening now, goodness only knows what will happen if we go above 1.5 degrees. So these are very, very serious and worrying signs, so that in, in a sense underestimating 
what the impact of temperature rises are going to be. So the 1.5 came back into the text because that sense of worry and that sense of concern finally came home. So they, they did away with them below 2 degrees and came back to 1.5. And that's why that's there. It's because there are genuine concerns that we're in a, um, a very uncertain, I wouldn't say very uncertain world. We can see where it's going. We can see the direction of travel. But the speed at which we're moving is really, really quite surprising. So these planetary boundaries could also have runaway characteristics, ocean acidification uh, and so on. So it's, this, is, this is touching the unknown. This is the real problem. But then what people ask me is, well, okay, this, I understand this is at the planetary level and so on, but what does it mean locally? How, how do I get planetary boundaries into my local setting? What, does, you know, what should I be thinking about? I don't live near the ocean. How do I deal with ocean acidification and so on? So that scaling is genuinely the challenge. Now, this is a kind of a slightly complicated looking diagram, but it, but it isn't that complicated because all it has is the capitals. So now I'm going to turn to the capitals framework, which will work locally and will connect us to the planetary boundaries. So the, traditionally, there are four major capitals, natural, human or social, and the sort of produced capital. And what I'm, and human capital is more about, you know, labor and, and how we train people and so on. But the crucial ones that I'm focusing on today are the natural capital and the social capital. For me, they go together. And what a lot of people are looking at is when you connect knowledge, let's say, pharma cooperatives, laws, regulations, and so on, with pollution and nutrient cycling, these planetary boundary activities, and then you go and look at something like farming or agroforestry, you see that you really have to pay attention to the things that, are, um, that we measure today and the things that we don't measure today. So in between all of here, there's a lot of things called ecosystem services and social capital, which has to do with who you network with, who your friends are, how you get um, essentially buy-in, how you can change behaviors, and so on. So the two capitals for me, which are the ones that have the most likelihood of helping us solve the problem of climate, but also creating prosperity, are social and natural. Now, these capitals can be described in very uh, simple ways, but what I've found over the years is that we really have to make them context-specific. So let me take you back again to East Africa, and I'm going to give you just a sort of little view of things that you have to do if you want to set up a full capitals calculation. So let's say for half a million people or for a very large area, you want to create what does, the, what does natural prosperity look like? What does the natural capital look like? What does the social capital look like? And so you, you kind of have to look at everything. So you look at farming and forestry, you look at the landscape people live in, you look at the energy and so on. And so we had, well, I have research teams made, from, uh, made up of uh, communities and so on. And so we worked in sort of three different areas across here. These are very, very large areas. You can see these from space, the, the forest here, for example. And so we focused on regenerative farming and forestry. How could we restore all of that forestry area that's been lost? And how can we make sure that people have access to clean energy? Now, Kenya is very lucky because it has nearly 98% renewable energy. We have geothermal, hydro, solar, um, and, and, uh, and so on. But what was missing 
is the last mile where the pole is there, but the wires aren't there because no one can afford it. So what we had to try and create is affordable clean energy. So household biogas, little briquettes, and so on. Now, to get to the point where you have to have, you need to have action, you need to be able to add everything up into a simple, a simple numeraire. So the driver for me has always been, how can we create all of these livelihoods and activities so that they complement maybe what government's doing to draw down carbon dioxide emissions? So what you want to be doing is you want to be demonstrating what you're doing to help this. So this is the big picture. This is the planetary picture. So we've got a very famous Keeling curve going up. And this is what, obviously, governments are committed to doing and, and going down, literally cutting every year by half, by half, by half, all the way down to 2030 and then down to 2040, where it's supposed to go carbon negative. So lots of promises about 2040. Um, unfortunately, we're still doing this. <laughs> we're not doing that. So, you know, there's a lot to bend this curve. But one of the ways we can start to bend the curve is, as I say, to go back to nature and to nature-based solutions to really drive that uh, curve downwards. So let's start with decarbonizing energy naturally. This is, you know, this is the horror story that we've had for at least uh, 10, 20 years. So how can we convert that into something which is essentially driven by um, PV or by, by electricity um, and, and essentially come away from fossil fuel. Well, again, if you look at the COP26 text, you will see the phasing down and phasing out of coal and of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So this is one, again, this is one of the first times we've actually got subsidies in the text. So that's very important because the reason why you have this and the reason why you have gas is because fracking and all of these are heavily subsidized and it just makes the fuel extremely cheap. And even if you go to something like plastics and you look at the feedstock, the cost of virgin plastics coming from fossil fuels as a feedstock is at least half, if not quarter, the price of a bio-based feedstock. So it's a kind of a nonsense. So you literally have to go right back to how the subsidies are influencing how the market is being driven. Now, the subsidies can come into the accounting structures very easily. I mean, that's, that's a price distortion. So that's a fairly straightforward and well-understood piece of economics. What's less well-understood is the triggering to get, for example, the alternatives up and running. So the question really us, we have to ask ourselves is, what's the trade-off between this and subsidies and this and subsidies? Well, of course, it's the emissions. It's the accounting of the emissions. So when we, when we do this coupling, there's a lot of fuss about biodiversity, for example. If you want to go and put a solar farm in, like in uh, Longfield, for example, in Essex, one of the largest solar farms that's going to go in, um, ironically, when you put a large solar farm in, you get fantastic biodiversity. Well, obviously, because no one's walking around, no one's, you know, no one's making any noise, and the birds are okay, etc., etc., and you get lots of soil biodiversity and so on. So it really challenges, I think, a lot of questions about how do we value it. So if we value this landscape, I guarantee you, in today's language, this landscape, with all of the biodiversity and the renewable energy and the, la and the sort of reduced emissions, has a far, far higher value than, for example, this 
particular landscape, even though this is transporting people and they're creating a lot of uh, productivity and wealth and so on. When we look at the damage, so for example, from fossil fuel emissions, in areas around, let's say, urban settings, such as London, but also particularly in a lot of American cities and so on, the calculations show that the loss of ecosystem functioning is costing us on the terrestrial side in the order of 3,000, 3,000 billion, 3,000 million, so it's $3 billion a year in lost ecosystem services. So that's contaminated food, loss of pollinators, and so on. So it's an enormous number. It's probably an underestimate. It's a sort of weird number. And in the marine environment, it's not dissimilar. But this is the hidden cost. So that diagram I showed you with all the lines going through, that's where all of these losses become real. And so they actually appear on the, on the accounting books. So back again to sort of the real world. How do, we, how do we sort of make sense of all of that? Well, here's, here was today's reality about a year ago. So lots of ladies going off to the forest with their donkeys, spending eight hours a day inside the forest collecting wood. And not necessarily collecting the wood that they were allowed to collect, which is the dead wood lying on the floor, but like two or three weeks earlier, somebody would go into the forest and maybe chop the tree a little bit so that it would die. And then they could go and collect it because it's dead wood. So you sort of, you can see that there's some slightly perverse behaviors going on. But anyway, this donkey load would be taken to the local uh, village or the local uh, market, and that would be about $5 worth. Okay, so eight hours, $5 worth. That's a lot of work, right? And the ladies are out, and it's not, it's not a great story at all. So we started talking to them and saying, we have to find an alternative. So I said, okay, well, let's see if we can invent a household biogas unit. Let's see if we can make briquettes out of other things, like maize cobs and, and waste, and, and let's see what this looks like. So in the space of about a month, invented this, made these very, very dense briquettes. They, take, they burn for three hours. So if you take a big log of wood, that'll go down in about an hour. This takes three hours to burn. And now the ladies can go to market with a brown paper bag, which they can sell for $8. Okay, so $8 as opposed to $5 for a donkey. Well, of course, this is the no-brainer. This is absolutely going to work. And so now the ladies have got enough money to make these for themselves, to start to actually make the machine, to sell the machines, to sell the briquettes, and so on. And it's waste, so they're, they're using vegetation and waste that's coming from everyday use. And then this is for using to make biogas, cow dung. So now they all have gas stoves, clean energy. So it does two things. No more, no more smoke in the house, nice clean energy. The ladies really like it. So they've got a nice clean house. And now they're setting up businesses to sell these. So these sell for quite a lot of money, but it's way cheaper to buy this with free you know, cow dung than to actually go and either buy a, a gas cylinder or to be doing this. And then... You, once you start talking about energy, then you start to run a sort of an, an accounting structure and you say, well, in fact, we could move over to bagasse, we could take this as waste, we can make energy, we can go and catch croton nuts, we can turn this into a bioenergy source and so on and so forth. So what happens is that people's imaginations start to you know, really, really go wild. And so now we have all kinds of sources of energy which are not destructive to the forest, but which effectively are providing not only energy for the households, but a, but a, a product which can be sold and here at scale. 
So this bagasse, which is the leftovers from the sugar cane, has got a lot of energy in it, is now actually doing all the heating for the tea, for, to dry the tea and to, and to be used in that. So they're all now quite happy. They're making quite a good income on that. And that circular thinking is captured then in the natural capital because the sugar cane is just one thing that comes out of that field, but all of the waste is now taken in and creates a whole different driver for, for people to have uh, livelihoods. So let's go on to agriculture. So agriculture is a complete disaster, I have to say, overall, the planet. Would that most of it was like this, but it's not. So we have plantation ecologies, typical of the Anthropocene. We have a lot of industrial farming like this, where the soil is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, and there is a movement of regenerative farming, which is effectively, you know, bucking the trend. And interestingly, these particular cows are carbon positive. In other words, they are in a cycle with the land. So it's a, it's a very interesting process where the cattle have got to such a point of health that their rumen is working really efficiently, that the dung that comes out contains amazing levels and amounts of bacteria and fungi. That goes into the soil and they're moved frequently so the soil microbes love it. The soil microbe population gets more and more efficient, sequesters more carbon, grass is healthier, cows are healthier, and you get the whole thing going like this. So it all hinges on the fact that the soil health has become more and more efficient. So when we monitor the soil organic carbon here and the sequestration rates, it's right at the top of the capacity of that particular soil, that particular geology, and that biome. So it's quite extraordinary how you can get to that point. It takes about four or five years, but effectively that's what's possible. So that's regenerative farming for cattle. So we may not have to have you know, a complete you know, ban of all meat. It might be possible to have some places where one can actually have cattle grazing in particular ways. On the other hand, you know, the solution to this is beautifully shown in the way that farming has been done for, um, uh, for palm oil. So there are now, um, some of you may have seen the Earthshot example, where there was a, a group taking palm oil, not through deforestation, but actually embedding the palm oil inside the forest. And when we do the natural capital accounts for those forests, they're incredibly valuable because they've actually retained all of the integrity, they have medicines, and they also have the palm oil. So it makes really good business sense. This does not make good business sense anymore because this is a highly industrialized, don't forget all the fossil fuel subsidies that are going into here. So if you take the real value of what is happening here and the damage to the water and the damage to the soil, this is a sort of net negative operation. And it's, and it's literally at the edge of its resilience and we see this in Australia. We see farms that are literally going out of business because that's what they have been engaged in for the last, uh, for the last few years. Right, next door to them, you can have a farm like this and, and they're surviving the droughts, they're surviving the floods and the fires and so on. So how can we turn that into something which is going to matter for the millions and millions of small-scale farming? Well, the first problem is that as farmers get pushed into the edges... They're so desperate to plant and to use the land that they will clear literally pristine forest. And very sadly, that's what had happened here. This was a forest three or four weeks earlier, um, and they wanted to plant potatoes. 
no, it was, sorry, two months earlier, they'd wanted to plant potatoes, so they just literally clear that whole forest. And that was dense. I mean, you literally couldn't walk through it very easily. But they're so desperate to be able to have a bit of land in one hectare to plant some po potatoes. But it's just not sustainable, and you know, the soil runs off the hills and all of that. So through talking through, measuring the forest, uh, looking at the natural capital, seeing how we could grow other species like bamboo, um, different kinds of alley cropping, um, putting inside forest small pockets of agriculture, moving um, agriculture around. This, fortunately, is becoming a thing of the past, and more and more of this area has now been replanted with trees. So sad that we lost the trees, but nevertheless we have them. So what had happened is we did a valuation of this land as it was cleared for agriculture, and it came in at round about... It's about $1,000 per hectare. doesn't sound like very much, but it is quite a lot of money. But when the trees have gone, been going in and they're able to plant maybe 500 trees in that, in that hectare and do all of the agriculture as well, the value of that land has now gone up to $5,000. 5000 It's a five-fold increase in the value of the land because of the planting of the trees and the alley cropping and so on. And it's a real livelihood. So it's genuine that if you do the full valuation, you can turn that into, as I say, real livelihoods. And you reduce the amount of waste and chemicals that are going into the water. So protecting ecosystems is another whole part of this. So we have a lot of people who, around the world, have spent their lives protecting ecosystems. Some of them put their cells on the line and have actually suffered for it. Um, so what we want to do is we want to create new financial instruments that will essentially reward people for what they have done. So what I see quite often is a lot of inequity. So someone who's not looked after their land very well um, seems to be eligible for all the grants and all the things. You know, I'm going to improve my land, I'm going to have these plans, I'm going to do all of this planting and everything else, and they get, you know, they get all the money. But the person who's been looking after their land for all the years that they have actually doesn't qualify oh, no, but you've already got trees and you've got nice water and you've got all of that, so, you know, no, you don't qualify. Sorry, go away. Well, that doesn't seem very fair to me. So together with, some, uh, with a group of financiers and various uh, ratings agencies and so on, we're creating a new instrument, a mutual, in which people are given a living share and effectively you can come into it and you will be judged and the value of your land is judged on your past performance not on your future promises, but on your past performance. So in a sense, you go forward each year with, if you continue to do a good job at the end of that year, of course you continue to increase the value of your shareholding, but what it means is those people who've been in the business for a long time and have taken care of their land, then they actually will see the benefit of it. So here in the UK, we've got quite a few estates. Spain's Hall, some of you might know where the beavers are. So they're part of this, and they're really experimenting how to actually make this happen, because very sadly, a lot of the things that DEFRA and the Environment Bill talk about are for new things, you know, not, not for what you did in the past, just for the new things. So this is a way of counteracting that. So protecting ecosystems is an activity that needs to be recognized as part of the climate change and as part of um, uh, the Glasgow Pact going forward. So when we think about you know, all the things we could do around the planet, the afforestation, um, the grazing, looking after peatlands, and so on, each one of these 
really qualifies for not only the full accounting structure, but also how to turn that into an account that generates value for people today, on, both on past behaviors, but also if they decide to go into a transformation. Now, ironically, when we're in the COP meeting, it's all this talk about finance, um, how important it is, private finance has to get together with government, and we have to do this together. Unfortunately, most of the private finance was not invited in to the blue zone. They were over in the innovation zone outside. The people who were in were the multilateral banks. The problem with them is that they actually have debt, they have charging, they have loans. Whereas over here, you have a lot of people who run your pension funds, our pension funds, who need to find good investments. So they're over here, governments are over here. So I went over here and I thought, wow, this is amazing because these are the groups who are looking at how to do this at a massive scale. And I find that quite you know, it's worrying, but it's comforting that there are at least people who are stepping up. And we're talking about very, very large sums of money. So this literally is what we need to do across the whole of the planet. And so we need an underpinning account. So when an investor comes along and says, I want to see that my money's making a difference, well, actually, they'd like to see a report. They'd actually like to see that it matters and what they've done actually counts. So back to basics. So in the, in, the, in the Malforest, as I mentioned, we trained up many, many of the warriors to use their knowledge about all the species that they were familiar with and to map the whole of the forest. This is a lot of area. So systematically, we went out and we mapped all the trees, well, not all the trees, but most of the trees, their health, how big they are, how much carbon they're capturing, put it all onto a mobile platform, which they run. Um, even if they can't read and write, they can use the platform, they can talk to the platform and record all of this. So this is, it's quite extraordinary when um, botanists and people come out and they stand next to them, they're amazed because you know, they know many, many more species, identify many things that have never been seen before. So this mapping is essentially money in the bank because when we talk about um, protecting the environment, stopping people from polluting, you actually have to say, this is what you're affecting. This is the capital asset that you are actually affecting. So in the community, this is sort of what it looks like. So you have all of these people who are totally familiar with the forest. They know all the species. They also understand you know, that it's important that they do everything together as a community. This is where social capital comes in. They all have different kinds of networks of relationships with each other. We have different tribes that have slightly different views on things, which is important. But what is really extraordinary is that here is a picture, an iconic picture, of how the Maasai see their worldview. So they use a Maasai shield. Community, incredibly important. Education, very important. Leadership, very important you know, clean environment and so on. This is how the Nandi tribes see, where they have community, very important, leadership, very important, education and so on, environment. And each community has its own kind of worldview, but it turns out they all have very, very similar elements within it. So when we're talking with communities about what do they want to do, how do they want to take this forward, they, you know, they, they come with incredibly good ideas. So they might say, we're going to shift our food into more traditional foods, you know, pigeon peas and all these others. So we're not going to grow 
things for necessary for the market which don't fit the climate, we're going to go back to some of the traditional foods. Um, we're going to grow and we're going to create tree nurseries and we're going to document that and so on. So the decision-making is at the community level. And again, I refer back to the COP, which was really good because that also now has a very strong paragraph saying that none of this is going to happen without the participation of communities. So that's a really that's at the very end, paragraph 95, 96. Please read that. Basically, it says this is in the hands of communities. So you know, all these important issues are captured, are captured there. And then how do we make those decisions real for an investor, let's say, sitting in the city? Well, you have to understand the context of the land. You have to understand that different land is doing different things. So if you want to derive a natural capital health indicator, it has to be context-specific, has to relate to the soil and everything else. You have to be able to accurately measure it in a way which is believable, replicable, and can be taken anywhere in the world to be compared. So as I say, it has to be accurate and scalable. And you need to be able to create insights so that people can have choices about how they might use that asset. And so an example is around soil. So you'll see now, more and more in the next year, that nearly every country is turning to the first one in the list of natural capital, and it's soil. So soil is right up at the top and it's soil organic carbon. And this is a really big challenge because it turns out that soil organic carbon, to measure it traditionally, a person would go out in the field and you know, they'd, they'd paste a W and they'd take a sample and then they'd go over here and they'd take another sample and, and, you know, and they've got a field that's like 200 hectares. Well, that's not going to tell you very much. So you have to be much, much smarter about how we do that. So there are some new measures that have come up um, that allow you to really determine what that soil organic carbon is accurately at a very high resolution. And on the basis of that, Australia is first out of the box. Can you imagine all the things you've probably read about Australia? You couldn't imagine it. But they're going to be the first ones that will truly have the regulator and the clean energy finance supporting accurate soil organic carbon. Why? Because they're completely convinced that if they don't do something in the next two to three years for all of their farmers, many of them will literally go under. If you see the quality of the soil, it doesn't have a lot of carbon, so what little there is, they need to literally work to keep in there. So the Australian government, despite everything that's written about them, has actually produced the goods and has created these new ways, regulators, uh, regulatory uh, processes, and they're paying a dollar, they're paying for one tonne per hectare. But if you want to solve the global problem, one tonne per hectare of carbon per year is not going to save the planet. So uh, when I compare it to the where I showed you the Mao Forest, you've got 465 tonnes per hectare, and you can sequester at between 35 and 40 a year. So, you know, if you want to save the planet, don't, you're not going to save it by going to Australia, unlike Mr. Gates thought he would do, but anyway, that's another matter altogether. But nevertheless, they still need to have their land saved. So this is what I keep saying. The natural capital accounting that I'm saying all again, again and again, is it allows you to do the right things in the right place for the right reasons. So maybe in Australia you do it because you want to keep farmers actually alive and, and, and prospering. 
But if you want to save carbon, then you should go to the Amazon, or you should go to the, the, the forests in the, in the montane areas, in the tropics. So there are places where it's going to really matter at a planetary level. So you know, planting a lot of fir trees in Scotland could be all right, but you won't trap a lot of carbon. So I think that's the, that's the kind of way that the natural capital accounting can show you the impact of what you're doing. And you may choose that you want to put a forest in Scotland, that's fine, generate biodiversity, create jobs, and so on. But you probably won't be as carbon intensive as maybe if you do it somewhere else. So that's the idea about the accounting. It makes it more transparent about all the things that you're doing. So we've taken that high-end carbon mapping, the very high-resolution mapping, and with all of the teams, <clears throat> put them around the table, and here is the, here's the now the Mao Forest with two scenarios. So all the communities come together, and we say, right, we can do a couple of things here. We can carry on as usual. No, that's not really an option. Or we can do carbon farming, or we could do forest gardening. They're kind of the same. And so what's happened is we've created a platform, and this is now happening in many, many places. You create a platform and you say, if what you're after is to sequester as much carbon as possible, go to the red areas. If you want to help livelihoods, come into these areas where the farmers are and help them plant trees on their farms and do alley cropping and various other things and create livelihoods. So by creating these sorts of, <clears throat> let's call them products, these accounting products, it actually gives people choice as to how they're going to invest their funds. And that's incredibly important because what we can't afford to do is to create, as I said at the beginning, these bubbles where you get false valuations around you know, carbon and so on. So at the moment, we have about 100,000 households involved in this. We have many, many thousand farmers in Australia thinking in the same way, same in Namibia, same in Latin America, and so on. So effectively, these are the tools of the future. This, this, these are the kinds of tools that we're going to see more and more and more of. Um, and for me, it really ties beautifully into what natural prosperity is all about because it puts nature at the heart of our prosperity and it creates a new currency for us to have a conversation. You know, we're going to have conversations about ecosystem services, about carbon, about different things, not necessarily just about um, GDP and not just about uh, dollars. So here's one of the outcomes of using that map. Um, so one of the banks, one of the philanthropists, just put some money on the table. And so this has taken off, and we've, I don't know, they've plant, we've planted about um, 25,000 trees just in this area. Each child owns the tree, takes care of it for all of their growing time while they're at the school, and obviously will come back hopefully in time and, and make sure that uh, you know, it's still alive. So there's a kind of education element, but there's always also a sense of ownership that this is my contribution, this is how we're going to do it. So it's not just small scale. This is going on again and again and again, um, you know, all across these very large areas. And it's replicable. So we're seeing that we can do this in many, many different places. And out of that has come, as I say, these different types of investment platforms. And that's what we needed in Glasgow. We actually needed to think much more in a, in a cleverer way about the kinds of investment platforms. So it wasn't just about big wadges of money, you know, 100 billion, we didn't make it, we have to make it. The question is, what are you going to do with that 100 billion? And then if there's 100 billion every year, what are you going to do with it to make sure that it gets invested properly? And who's going to see 
that it's invested properly. And my, my sort of pitch, if I can call it that, is that it should be communities that are determining how this money is going to be spent locally. It shouldn't always be top-down. It should be that there's a, there's a way in which communities can create an architecture that suits what they're doing. So here, for example, we have a group of herbalists who now feel confident that the forest will be restored. And so they're going to share their knowledge to create medicines, which will then become a bit like the malaria medicine that came out of India. We have uh, two cancer medicines and one for insulin. There are special plants that will absolutely do the job. Now they're willing to share it and to bring it forward because they know the forest will be protected. Similarly, you know, the, these, these are, um, this is a different kind of alley cropping. They're thinking about how they can put trees in between of value. Here are ladies planting trees back into the savannah, which hasn't had uh, trees for a long, long time. And here's the schools, you know, taking this on as a, as a massive program. And out of that, we have banks coming and saying, okay, well, we can create voluntary markets, we can create green bonds, we can create mutuals, because we've got an accounting structure that we can rely on. So in a sense, that's it. If you can be transparent and you can create something that is um, visible, transparent, can be checked, can be audited, can be assured, then in a way you give people confidence to come in and see that it's real. So this is real. You can go and visit that tree and you can go and see it growing and you can calculate how much carbon it's actually putting in the ground. And that's the difference between this kind of carbon market and the offsetting and some of the other carbon markets that have been set up in the past which are very, very difficult to put your fingers on. So, yeah, this is, this is the real natural capital accounting as opposed, to the, as opposed to the slightly ethereal one. So I'll leave it at that, um, and I'm very happy. I, I know I've kind of almost gone to the end, but happy to answer any questions. Thank you. The question here is, Article 38 in the final version did not mention NBS. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it says it was taken out, and some reports say there was opposition from some parties. For example, Bolivia, does the excision matter? Okay. So what we're talking about is market-based systems, and there is a challenge in language because when we talk about capital and markets for nature-based solutions, there's a sense in which our dear colleagues from Latin America, particularly Bolivia and others, feel very, very aggrieved. They feel that we shouldn't monetize nature. And so there's always a very delicate balance between, as I say, monetizing and putting a value on nature and, and not. So Mother Earth and the whole kind of um, way in which that's discussed is almost diametrically opposed to when we use in the English language words like asset and capital and valuation. So that's the tension. Do I think it matters? It doesn't insofar as if you leave it as a linguistic process, but if you bring it into the real world and you look at how people could benefit from good market-based mechanisms, then I think we would definitely want to see that they are in place. But it has to be a fair and just, a just market. That's the point. Yeah. Well, thank you for an excellent talk. Um, my thought is that there's obviously a finite resource for investing in the restoration of, uh, of nature. And um, I, I've, heard, and I, I, I've heard that there are other ways of investing. I mean, clearly, in restoring forests is, is an excellent idea. 
but um, I understand that restoring, for example, peat bogs mm -hmm. and seagrass mm -hmm. will um, generate much more carbon capture than regenerating forests. Um, and if I had my hundred dollars, yes, you know, what should I? What should you do? Invest, yeah. What should I do? With well, it? okay. Let me let me recall for you. It matters where you plant that forest. And, and why you're doing it. So if you want to trap carbon and you are rather particular to having it in Europe, then seagrass, kelp, really good option, really good option because it stores carbon at no, you know, like it's at an incredible rate. Peat bogs, we have to try to do something. So not digging them up is really the issue. It's not about restoring them. They take, you know, thousands of years. But not allowing them to be degraded is really crucial because they do release a lot of methane. But if your aim is to try and get uh, a lot of carbon stuffed into the ground, then looking at those tropical montane areas is a very good bet. So I think it's why you want to invest. If you want to invest in people, that's probably also another good argument. Yeah. I was trying to think about how, um, if you could imagine a pension scheme mm -hmm. wanting to invest its money, um, how it would, um, are there options or how it would work where it could make an investment and then actually make some money to pay the pensions that obviously you right. know, it's set up to do originally. Right. So there's, there's many ways in which pension funds can realise the value of that investment. One is that actually they are sitting over a lot of uh, companies that have to have um, a, an environment and social good element. So that's part of the value of a company that they are actually delivering on that as a goal. So that's one aspect that pension funds need to pay attention to. In the food chain, uh, there's huge opportunities simply because consumers now want to know that the farm field where they got their produce from is being managed properly, for example, and that is finding its way through the supply chains already, already. Uh, cotton. There's a, for example, there's an Australian cotton grower called Good Earth. He has been able to produce the least, uh, how can I use it? His cotton uses the least water of any cotton grower on planet Earth, literally. It's quite extraordinary. But he's gone one step further, and he's actually able to put a fiber in his carbon, in, in the cotton bale, which labels that cotton, it's from a $100 US bill, by the way. Put a blockchain on it. So that means now that if you buy a pair of jeans, from H&M, by the way, uh, you can tell which field that has come from, and he can demonstrate that. So all of these things are now coming up, and that's why pension funds are so interested. That's why they're so interested, because they can demonstrate the value of what they've been investing in. Um, so in terms of investments and, you know, putting this in front of, um, you know, banks and asset managers, and, yeah. you know, that's what we actually need. To translate these physical measurements, mm -hmm. um, water quality, air quality, carbon sequestration, you know, soil quality, how would you actually translate it onto that financial statement? So you, you value the assets and the cost to maintain them and possibly the income from carbon sequestration. Right. What sort of measurements would you use to do that? Well, I can give you the example for carbon, uh, soil carbon, for example. So the Australian government has said they're prepared in their national setting as part of their NDC, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the commitment that they make, that they will pay up to, and I can't remember what it is now, I think it's $15 per tonne per hectare. So that's an absolute value that goes on to the book price 
and that's easy to do. And more and more of those are coming up, water holding capacity. So sometimes it's to hedge risk, sometimes it's an absolute value. And what all that 100 billion has been talking about is putting money into those kinds of activities. So paying for the carbon. The price of carbon right now has, is at $60 a tonne. I mean, it's just going skyrocketing. So, you know, whether th but is that real or not? I don't know. What I do know is that we have to document how re fe feasible it is to actually trap the tons of carbon that everyone is talking about. And that's why we need these metrics. That's why we need the accounting to demonstrate for real that it's happening. But water is another one that's already, you know, on the books of many of the financial institutions. So, yeah. Thank you very much for your lecture, you. and please join me in thanking the professor. Thank you.